0: If you uh, just made it in, I want to welcome you again. Thank you for worshiping with us here at Redeemer. And we are in our 1 Corinthians sermon series. We'll be camping out here this fall and in the spring. And so I want to uh, just draw your attention to 1 Corinthians chapter 3. And uh, last week we dealt with verses 1 through 4. We're going to be picking up here in verse 5 where they're divided over, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos. And then Paul uh, actually starts with two questions. Who then, or who then, or what then is Apollos? What then is Paul? And he's going to expound more. So he's continuing to uh, address uh, the same thing. So uh, when you get there, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 5, say amen. amen. All right, this is it. What then is Apollos? And what is Paul? Servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. He who plants and he who waters are indeed one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. For we are God's fellow workers, and you are God's field. Amen. I'm going to stop with not do the building. We'll do that the next time we're in 1 Corinthians. Pray with me. Uh, Father in heaven, uh, we do have manifold reasons to give thanks to you. May you make us, Lord, a thankful people. Uh, Jesus reminds us that there were lepers who were healed and the Lord of glory cured them of their sickness and all went away and one returned, one gave thanks, one gave glory to the Lord. Father, something about us, Lord, is slow to bow before you. We're forgetful. And yet uh, songs like we just sang remind us that you have done abundant things for us to be thankful. You've given us food. You've given us shelter. You've given us friends. You've given us jobs. You've given us our right minds. You've even given us water when the water is undrinkable. These good gifts come from your hand. And Lord, if you do nothing else, We know that you are good. You've given us your son, and he is indeed right now preparing a place for us and will return for us. And the blind will see, and the lame will walk, and the deaf will hear, and sin and sorrow and death will be no more. And so, Father, we are a people of great hope. And we thank you now that you speak to us. You are not dead and distant, We have the mind of Christ, your spirit is in us. You've given us your word. So Father, I pray that you will speak through your servant. Forgive me my sins, Um, they are ever before me. And uh, make us all clean. Continue to wash us by your spirit, the work of Jesus, and also your word. I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So um, a metaphor is a figure of speech that describes a person, place, or thing in terms of another. We almost subconsciously use them every day. If I want to flirt with my wife, I might say, I hit the lottery when I married you. It helps to know that the odds of hitting a lottery are slim to none. That when you hit the lottery, the dividends come month after month that I could be saying that my life is set because of you. You are the gift that keeps giving. Or you've heard people say that I'm drowning in the sea of grief. And it helps to know a little thing about drowning. We were in Cleveland on a boat. We rented one and took our kids out on Lake Erie. And we were flooring it. And our kids were kind of on the back, on an inner tube, and we looked back and my son just rolled off of it. <laughs> and, uh, and so here I am, Karen's driving. I'm looking back and I don't see my son's head. Like he just goes underwater. And I mean, we're, I, mean I jumped out, we stopped the boat, jumped out, swam to him, and then his little head came up. And when we say that grief is like that, We're saying that grief can take us under. We're saying that grief can overwhelm us. Grief can take us down and we never come out. We say things like he is growing like weeds or she is a night owl or they are early birds. Those are metaphors and they're all using something we know in nature to explain something about us. According to linguist Anatoly Lieberman, the use of metaphor is relatively late in modern European languages. Contrast this with the Hebrew Bible, and metaphors are abundant. Thousands of years old. The Lord is my rock. The Lord is my strong tower. The Lord is my fortress. The Lord is my shield. The Lord is my shepherd. Hebrews were masters of metaphor long before other cultures got on the boat. They're the master of metaphor because God is the master of metaphor. God is invisible. He dwells in inapproachable light. You haven't seen him. But the Bible says that the heavens declare the glory of the Lord, that day-to-day creation pours out knowledge. Even that's a metaphor. Like, creation is pouring out knowledge about God. Now, why? Because God is accommodating us. He is saying, you can't see me, but you can see a rock, and you can see a sea. And you can see a shield, and you can see a strong tower, and you can see a tree. And because I'm revealing myself through creation, creation is going to help you understand me. That's why metaphor is in the Bible before you see it in any other cultures. It's because the the Bible is God's truth to us. And so Paul, being a Hebrew of the Hebrews and very knowledgeable of the Old Testament, uses metaphor in First Corinthians to highlight truth about the church, about God, about themselves, about uh, what God is doing in the world, and he does it far more frequently than you and I think when we read the word. Last week, Paul says, I could not address you brothers as spiritual people, but as infants in Christ, I fed you with milk, not solid food. That's a metaphor. Paul is saying, I'm the mama, and I'm still breastfeeding you all, but you're supposed to be on solid food, but you are not maturing. That's metaphors the image of a child is teaching them something about the church in 1 Corinthians 12 he says the church is like a human body go look in the mirror you are one person but you have two eyes you have two ears you have a mouth you have hands you have feet they are all different members but they're one body so it is with the church says Paul or what about the next time we're in the text he's gonna say you are God's building what you mean to tell me when I see a contractor building a building that can teach me about the church? Yes, says God. Or what about the temple? He says, you are God's temple. So that means as they're walking through Corinth and seeing Aphrodite, that if they were, if they were Gentiles, God is saying, you know what? I'm teaching you something about me even there. Or if you're Jewish and you're reminiscing on the temple in Jerusalem, which when Paul wrote this, it would have been up and operative. He says, look, y'all the real temple. You see what Paul is doing? He's using metaphor over and over and over again. He wants them to walk down the street and see people and look in the mirror and see themselves and say, you can learn something about the church by looking at image bearers. When y'all see these buildings being built in Corinth, it can teach you something about the church. When you're nursing your child and birthing your child and see them grow up, it's teaching you something about the church. And when you see these temples, in other words, day to day is pouring out knowledge. Everywhere they go, God is at work and God is teaching and revealing, them, uh, revealing something about Himself to them. And that's what's happening in our passage this morning. There is a lack of clarity about the church, a lack of clarity about how to view church leaders, a lack of clarity around what is God up to in the church. And you know what Paul says? I got a metaphor for you. You're a field. So what I think Paul is doing is using another metaphor and the metaphor here Is a field, a garden, a vineyard. And Paul is telling them, if you want to know who ministers are, go look at a farm. You want to know who you are? Go look at a garden. You want to know who God is? Go look at a plot of land being cultivated for food. And it'll teach you. And so that's what I want to look at this morning. Those are the three points. What is this? What can we learn about the church, namely its servants, its identity, and its God from something so simple as farming? That's what I got for you. First thing we see is the the church is God's garden. It's God's farm. And you get that in verse 9a. Paul is building up to it. Till he finally gets to the end and says, you are God's field. That word there can mean farmland. It can mean land being cultivated for the production of olives or a vineyard of grapes. Whatever it is that Paul has in mind, he's likening the church in Corinth to a field, to a garden. And this isn't just a New Testament idea. That's why I had Steve read from the Psalms that in the Psalms, in Jeremiah, in Exodus, God is likened to a deliverer who takes them out of Egypt, clears the land, and plants them in the land. And in Jeremiah, he comes back to what he planted looking for fruit. It's the reason Jesus in John chapter four speaks of the kingdom. He says, the harvest is plentiful. What? And the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest. I'm sending you out to gather for that which you did not sow. You you get the image that it's all over God's mind to liken his people to agriculture. And so, they're a field, they're a farm, they're a garden. Now, why is this important? In a world that's consumed with I, the church is a place where we matter. Show you what I mean. I think there's a play on words here. Look at verse 4. Paul says, I follow Paul, or they say, I follow Paul. Another says, I follow Apollos. If you go back to chapter 1, I follow Cephas, I follow Paul, I follow Apollos, I follow Christ. It's I, 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 If you went in that church, that's what you would hear. I, 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 I. Now, notice what Paul does. It's a corrective here. Now, look at what he says in verse 5. Look at verse 5. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul's service through whom you believed? All right, so underline that you. Look at verse 9. We are God's fellow workers. You, underline you, are God's field. That you in both of those places, guess what? It's not singular, it's plural. It's you all. So don't read that and think that he's just talking about you. He's actually saying you all. Now, notice what he says. You all are God's field. He doesn't say you all are God's fields, plural. You all, plural, are part of one field. In other words, there is no black church and a black church field, right? There is no white church. That's the white church field. And that's the Biracial church field, and that's the church where Republicans go, and that's the church where Democrats go, and that's the church where the rich people go, and that's the field where the poor people go, and that's the field where the women go, and that's the field where the men go, and that's the field where the single people go, and that's the field where the married people go. Like, like that's how we divide up in our culture. And what Paul is saying, I'm not talking about I. You all are a part of one field where you bow the knee to one king and you're endowed by one spirit and you have one Lord and one faith and one baptism. And so what Paul is actually saying is like, what are y'all doing? And they needed to hear that in their individualistic society. I'm reading through Carl Truman's book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, and he tells the story of his grandfather. His grandfather left school at 15, didn't graduate, didn't go to college, and he worked as a sheet metal worker in a factory his entire life. He says, if you ask my grandfather if he found satisfaction in his work, there's a chance he would not have even understood your question. Given that this is a core concern of the modern, selfish, psychological man. He was not a part of this world. But he would have answered the question in terms of whether his work gave him money to put food on the table and shoes on his children's feet and a roof over their head. That if you would have asked him what brought him satisfaction, it would have been that. Can I take care of my wife and my kids? Do we have running water? Do we have a roof over our head? If that's what you mean by satisfaction, then yes, I'm satisfied. Then Carl Truman indicts himself. He said, but I'm of a different generation. If you ask me about my satisfaction with my job, here's what I'm going to tell you. My instinct is to talk about the pleasure that I get when I teach or the sense of personal fulfillment. I feel when a student learns a new idea, he says, the difference is stark. For my grandfather, satisfaction was outwardly directed. For our generation, it's inward feelings. And this is the air we breathe. Our culture places expressive individualism over the corporate good. I want this music. I want to sit here. I want to do this. I don't like that. I want to do this with my body. Right? You've heard that. Or I want laws that benefit I. Or I want to watch what I want to watch when I want to watch it. And that's what was going on in Corinth. It was I. I, everything. And Paul says, you all are. In other words, we're individuals who all come to faith and we're all a part of the same field, same team. Therefore, we are interconnected. We are brothers and sisters in the same singular field. And therefore, we must learn to value we and us. And not always I and what I want. We must learn to look out for the interests of others and not always ourselves. How do we know? Because that is how Jesus lived. He could have stayed in heaven at the right hand of God and says, oh, look at what I have. Oh, look at who I am. But you know the gospel, the gospel says, Jesus counted you and I worthy enough because he loved us to leave the right hand of the father and to take on flesh and to enter into our world and to live a perfect life and then to die a sinner's death not because he had any sin on his account, but because he was thinking about us. And that's why when Paul talks about not being selfish, he doesn't just say, get it together. You know what he says? Think about Jesus. Think about how he lived. The other reason I think this field metaphor matters It's because the field is planted that it might grow. Notice that twice in this passage, growth is mentioned. I planted Apollos' water, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. In other words, why do fields, farms, gardens exist to grow? That there might be a harvest to grow what is intended, to grow what is beautiful, and to grow what is essential for life. Think about the manifold blessings of having a garden. A gardener plants watermelon seeds to get watermelon seed, to watermelons. They don't plant watermelon seeds to get lemons. There's intended fruit in a garden. There's also beautiful fruit in a garden. We love to go to botanical gardens to see the roses and the gardenia and the daisies and the tulips and the Japanese maples and hostas and all the other stuff that you might find in my mom's yard or Miss Susan's backyard. And it's beautiful. It's colorful. And it's also attractive for birds and for hummingbirds and bees and they provide shade and create an ecosystems for creatures that we can't see and gardens are also essential for life without plants you die and paul is i think alluding to those three points here for the church why is the church like a garden to grow intended fruit for the Lord. And that's what the Lord is after in the Old Testament. Isaiah chapter five, my beloved had a vineyard on a fertile hill, he dug it, he cleared it of stones, he planted it with choice vines, he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes, poisonous, sour ones. Same thing in Jeremiah two twenty one, and that is baffling to the Lord, he wanted choice grapes, and yet it, it yielded sour, poisonous ones. That was a horticultural nightmare. And I think the point that the scriptures are making is that we're all bearing some kind of fruit. But if we name the name of Jesus, he wants us to be bearing the fruit of the Spirit which is love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control, not the works of the flesh, which is impurity, idolatry, sensuality, sexual immorality, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalry and dissension. And so the Lord has invested in us through the work of Jesus in his field that we might grow and bear fruit And not just any old fruit, the fruit that he is after, the fruit of his son and what union with Christ looks like. We start to look like Jesus. That's what the church is here for and that we might yield something beautiful to the world. I know Christians get a hard rap in the public eye at times. The Christians are still some of the most compassionate, forgiving, patient, loving, generous, approachable, humble, thoughtful, steadfast, hardworking, nuanced, sacrificial people I know. And I know that because I know you. We're also here that we might yield something vital for the world. Jackson has been in the news for the past couple of weeks, and not for a good reason. We have friends all over the country blowing our phones up. Bro, y'all good, bro? Y'all good, Doc? Let me mail you some water. I mean, I'm just like, every day somebody is no, no, why? It's because people see that something essential is missing. And here's the thing. Your body needs water and your body needs bread that is grown from grain. But your soul needs living water. And their souls need the bread of life. And here's the thing. They're not going to find it anywhere else outside of the church you have i have what the world so desperately needs and no one else that's good so how are you connecting with we how are you enjoying we instead of i we're called to be a blessing to our community and family and friends we're called to offer the world what they can find nowhere else. We're to be the aroma of Christ that is just like spreading where we go, leading people back to the chef in the kitchen. And that's you, church. The second thing Paul shines light on is how to rightly view servants of the Lord. I think he's trying to correct the way that they're viewing themselves. And now he's correcting the way that they view servants in the Lord. Now, every earthly farm needs workers. You and I know because of Adam's fall, what was one of the curses of their rebellion against God? Cursed is the ground because of you, right? Thorns and thistles will now grow out of it. And so that's what we know. We know if you leave any field alone alone, It does not magically turn into a garden. It doesn't, it can't. You know what's gonna happen? Weeds are gonna grow up. And rats are gonna live there. And ticks are gonna feed off the rats. And fleas are gonna be in there. And shrubs come out of nowhere, probably carried in bird feces and just dropped. Like it by nature, a field will turn towards chaos, not order. And so if someone providentially decides, I want to make that a field, a garden, then guess what? You have to have human effort. It doesn't just happen. And so that's what Paul is jogging our minds on. We can still create and we can still cultivate. We can take an overgrown field and turn it into a flourishing garden. But a person must do the work. Debris needs to be removed. It needs to be bush hog. You need to have a fine cut. Dirt needs to be added. More dirt added. And then someone has to create the rose. And someone has to plant the seed. And someone has to come and water. In other words, nothing will happen apart from human work. And that's what Paul says is true about the church in Corinth. Before he showed up, it was overgrown. Before he showed up, it was rampant. Before he showed up, cunning snakes were in the, on the prowl. It was a spiritual wasteland. And then something happened. Some mysterious owner decided to transform that wasteland into a wonderful garden. In fact, he has a history of renovating stuff. And in doing this, this mystery owner trained and invested in his employees and deployed his skilled workers for spiritual farming. And that's what happened. It's important to remember that Paul says, I'm not the owner. This ain't my idea. I'm a servant. We're not the Christ. And so when Paul showed up, he began like a hard-working farmer to clear the land by the spirit. He began to tend the weeds. He began to tear down strongholds. He began to turn that overgrown field into a farm of God. And so he planted the seed. And then another came after him named Apollos. And he watered. And they were not in competition with each other. They complemented each other's work. Paul planted, Apollos watered, two different pastors laboring for the same master in the same field. And this is what pastors are. Notice what Paul says. What then is Apollos? What then is Paul? We're servants. That word there is where we get our words deacons from. He's an errand boy for the king. He's a farm hand for the master. He's a servant. And here's the question. How do servants best serve the church? Best serve. How do servants and leaders Best serve the church for its growth. It's preaching the word of God. Week in, week out, day in, day out. What do you think Paul means when he says, I planted, but Apollos watered? I think he means for us to ask the question, what is so essential to gardening that if you do not do this, there would be nothing to grow? What is so essential that if you don't do it, there is no garden, there is no growth? It's planting and watering. To plant, to not plant, but water is mud. To not water, but plant is death. And so notice the goal in verse five is faith, servants through whom you believed. And so whatever Paul is doing, it is for faith as the Lord assigned. So here's the question. What then? How is faith born? You know the word. Faith comes by hearing. Hearing the word of the Lord. And that's why Paul says, Christ didn't even send me to baptize, but to preach. We preach Christ and him crucified. My speech and my message were not in plausible words, but in demonstration of the Spirit and power, so that your faith Might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. When you go to Acts 18 and they're describing Apollos, notice how he is described. He is described as one competent in the scriptures, one who has been instructed in the way of the Lord. He taught accurately the things concerning Jesus. He spoke boldly in the synagogue. He powerfully refuted the Jews, showing in the scriptures that Jesus was the Christ. Paul and Apollos. We're preachers, accurate, passionate, consistent, in season, out of season, cross-centered, God-honoring preachers. And this is how the garden, the church, grows. And I don't think Paul just means preaching. I think when you lay what's happening in Hebrews, which is a similar vocabulary, by this time, some of you ought to be teachers, but you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of God. You need milk, not solid food. Hebrews 5:12. Then Paul later says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you, the word of God. Same thing. Consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. In other words, I think what Paul has in mind, how does a church grow? Predominantly through the preaching of the word. And right next to it is through the holiness of her servants. And this is freeing because we live in a day and an age where everybody has an agenda for a pastor. Everybody will tell you what your pastor ought to be doing and what they ain't doing enough of and what they should be doing. And by God's grace, we don't have to wrestle with that. The early church, Acts chapter 6, there were these widows, Jewish widows, and uh, non-Jewish widows. And these widows over here were being discriminated against. They were not getting their food. And, And the apostles know God's heart for the quartet of the vulnerable. The poor, the widow, the immigrant, and the orphan. That is why Israel... That's why they were kicked out of the land because they would not love the lord their god with their heart soul mind and strength and they did not love the vulnerable and so in acts chapter 6 when the vulnerable show up that's a dilemma what do you mean do we feed them or do we keep preaching the word and you know what the apostle said That's important, but it's not right for us to not preach the word. Here's what we'll do. Deacons, you appoint seven men of good repute, of wisdom, full of the spirit. And those deacons, they will, by God's grace, care for the poor, care for the vulnerable, so that we can keep on preaching the word. You catch that? It's not an either or. It's a both and. But the question is, who should be doing what? And what Paul is saying, pastors, the best way to grow your people is to be in this and teach this. And seminary students, everybody has an agenda for what you ought to be doing. You ought to be marching. And you ought to be writing books. And you ought to have a podcast. And you ought to do this. You ought to do that. You ought to do that. I'm here to tell you, don't let them distract you. What you ought to be doing is staying in this word and crying in this word and laboring to understand this word and repenting in this word and discovering the riches of Christ in this word. And bringing that to bear upon your people week in and week out. And that sounds foolish to naysayers. But for those who believe, this is the wisdom of God. This is the way that God grows his people. It's through the preaching of Christ from the scriptures. And so here's something for you, Redeemer. You hold us accountable to that. Whoever is in this pulpit, this isn't the place for us to advance our agenda or our ideas. This is the place in worship and reverence of the Lord to speak, thus saith the Lord, through passages you get and passages that keep you up at night. Thus saith the Lord. This is where the power of God to build his church hinges upon. It's us preaching the riches of Christ. And you pray for your pastors. And you pray that what we preach stays in step with how we live and you pray, and you enter here with excitement and longing and joy. And it also has respect to how we view ourselves and how you view pastors. Charles Spurgeon says, Let, the Apostle Paul was anxious to be rightly viewed and accounted for. And well he might be, for ministers are not often estimated rightly. As a rule, they're either worshipped or despised. They're worshipped as God or detested. It would be for the advantage of the church and for for their own benefit, for our own benefit as ministers and for the glory of the Lord. If we were put in our right places and kept there, being neither overrated or unduly condemned, but viewed in our proper relationship to the Lord. You know what he's saying? Don't worship no pastor. And he's also saying don't abuse him either. right? Hold us right there where God intends. We're nothing, but we're also servants of the Most High God. And I'll finish with this. Paul is not only after clarifying what the church is and who leaders are, he also wants to clarify God's role in all of this. And it is more important than they think. God is indispensable to both the work of servants and the saving and sanctifying of the church. Remember, wasteland turned into farmland does not happen haphazardly. Servants have to go, but somebody gotta buy the field. Somebody gotta train the servants. Somebody gotta reward the servants someone is going to receive the harvest. There has to be an owner and master. And for Paul, he says, it's not us. We're just servants for whom you believe as the Lord assigned. And when you read chapter three in 23 verses, 21 times, some mention of God, the father, God, the son, or God, the spirit, 21 times out of 23 verses. You know what Paul is saying? We are nothing. God is everything. You're God's field. We're commissioned by God as the Lord assigns. He trains us and he's going to reward us. God is indispensable. And so who sends the one who plants? Paul says it in verse five, servants through whom you believed, as the Lord assigned. God knows who to send, where to send and when to send them. Who will reward the servants? Look at verse 8. He who plants and he who waters are one, and each will receive his wages according to his labor. I think those wages there are not the same wages that Paul gets about later. I think in context, he's talking about that day. Look at verse 13. Each one's work will become manifest, for the day will disclose it. It's so Paul has that future day of Christ Jesus and his return at mind. And what he's saying is, you servants of the Most High God. God, your Savior sees you, your Savior knows, and he is coming with a reward, and the reward is not based on the fruitfulness of your flock. It's not based on the size of your flock. It's not based on your unique mission and vision. Your reward is based on faithfulness to King Jesus. They had two of the best pastors in the Bible, Apollos and Paul. And they still immature. You catch that? So their reward ain't based on what the flock is doing. Reward is based on the faithfulness of the servants. Who will work harder than the servants to mature us? Look at verse 6. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Look at verse 7. Just in case you didn't hear it in the back. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything, but only God who gives the growth. And here's something so beautiful in the Greek that I, I, I got to say it to you, right? You can read verse six like this. I planted, passed, and completed. Apollos watered, Passed and completed, and you think he's about to say, and God gave the growth, past and completed, but that is not what the Bible says. It actually says God gave in the past the growth, and he is continuing to give the growth. In other words, the pastors will exit stage left and stage right. Our work will be done. We will die. You know whose work endures forever and ever and ever and ever? You're God. It's why sometimes you'll hear me pray, Lord, I'm about to take my seat and go home and take a nap. I'm about to stop working, but you ain't done with your people. You're going to keep working. That's what Paul is saying. And, and think it makes perfect sense, right? If you're gonna plant a garden, you come and clear the ground. You plant the seeds. Somebody else comes and water, but guess what your garden needs that you can't provide? Do you tell the sun when to rise? Can you control the weather? No. Every farmer is still dependent upon. Sources outside of themselves for growth. And what Paul is saying is that. I'm going to be faithful, but there is a limit to what I can do. There is no limit to what he is doing. And so when you go outside and you see the sun come up on you every morning, God, you're growing me up. When you read that word and go to sleep and wake up the next day in that sun, the sun is teaching me that you're rising on me today. Oh, Father, what a good Father and God and King you are. That when I've done my work in the scriptures, you are still doing your work on me to preserve me and to make me spotless and blameless in the day of Christ Jesus. That's the kind of God that we serve. His work is indispensable. This is why Paul says the one who started the work is going to complete the work. Amen. And that's reason to rejoice. So here's some homework for you. Why not this week drive by a garden? Go sit in your backyard with your coffee and look at flowers. Flowers. a garden, a farm is teaching us all truths about the gospel. Soak it in and worship your king. Let's pray. Father, we bless you. We thank you for giving us these beautiful metaphors that stick with us. May we never be able to unsee the similarities between us, your church, and a field that's being cultivated for fruit. May we never unsee the fact that we have limits. You are limitless. You are indispensable. You are colossal. You are huge, and you play the most important role in our saving and sanctifying. May we fall on our faces and worship you. You are faithful and true and good and steady. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.